You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Hi everyone, uh, good afternoon. I'm Mary Ryan. I'm Joint Head of the Public Events Programme here at the RSA. And I'm delighted to welcome you all here for this special lunchtime event. Now, it really is my great pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker, Mo Godat. Mo is a leading global expert in technology and innovation. He's the chief business officer for X, previously Google X, the world's most advanced organization for breakthrough technologies, or moonshots, um, as they're known. Mo joined Google in 2007 after many successful years at Microsoft, and he now manages Google's business in over 50 countries, focusing on his biggest passion, emerging markets, and the considerable challenges that they face with embracing innovation. So to give you an example, one of Mo's most recent projects is Loon. Um, You may have heard of it. It's an ambitious attempt to use high-altitude balloons to provide affordable internet access to the remaining 5 billion people for whom today's existing technology has proven too expensive or too complex to reach. So Mo is currently on sabbatical from X, uh, pursuing his own personal moonshot, uh, which is a mission to share the principles and further the cause of happiness wherever he can. These principles are contained in his book, Solve for Happy, Engineer Your Path to Joy. And in the book, Mo tells the story of how he took an engineer's approach to creating an algorithm for happiness which proved highly effective and by which he and his family lived for a decade until in 2013, the algorithm was put to the ultimate test, as we'll hear from Mo himself. So please welcome Mo Godat. So so a, a beautiful room and full, and we're filming, no pressure, right? So, yeah. Um... Uh, I'd like to introduce you to Ali. Uh, Ali, uh, my son and my best friend and my mentor. Uh, surprisingly, Ali uh, was probably the one that taught me most in life. Uh, I had him at a very young age. Ali uh, was uh, born when I was 25, so uh, we were um, we always played video games together and you know played music together and read books together. And he was the funniest man I ever knew. So we watched a ton of comedy together, and we laughed a lot together. Ali uh, was the kind of person that uh, uh, didn't speak much. If he spoke, it was either a joke, uh, which was uh, you know, a, a good reason to smile, uh, or it was very, 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 very wise. So you'd, have, you'd, better, speak, you'd, you'd better shut up and listen. And, uh, and so when he became 18, he was so wise that... Uh, I stopped going to my bosses and my friends for advice. I started to go to Ali, and he would listen and ask a couple of clarifying questions and then say something about four to eight words. I would go like, yeah, how did I not think of that, right? Uh, we, um, uh, we developed my happiness model together because Ali truly was the happiest person I ever met. Uh, he had that peace to him that you could not miss. Even as a child of two years uh, of age, there was that interesting energy to him that expanded and expanded until, you know, by age 21, he was that tall, broad-shouldered person who you just had to come close to and hug. And you can actually see in most of his pictures, 
he would be in the middle of the picture and six friends from here and six friends from there are trying to hug Ali. Um, and uh, Ali, I think, was training me all my life with our happiness model because, unfortunately, in 2014, uh, we lost Ali uh, to, um, to a preventable um, human error. So Ali came to visit us in Dubai, and he was diagnosed with an appendix inflammation. And uh, a basic, it's a very simple procedure, actually. Surgically, it's like a, a few minutes operation. Unfortunately, they made several mistakes in a row. And uh, within four hours, we moved from, you know, planning the best vacation we can think of to losing our child. And to lose a child, I know uh, those of you who have children will know, is the hardest thing ever. Uh, you know, it's until today I struggle to understand what it really means. I struggle to understand the exact feeling that I'm feeling, I just don't have words for it. There is no other event in my life where I felt the same way. And uh, there was every reason to be miserable, to be honest. When, when we lost Ali, uh, all of a sudden, to a preventable error at his prime, when, he's your, when you know, he, he was our son, our mentor, and our best friend. Uh, but we were not. Uh, we were okay. I wouldn't say we were happy, just to be very specific. But we were peaceful. Uh, we were not angry. We did not hate the world. We did not, you know, close our doors and decay, as, as we would have had the right to. As a matter of fact, even in the ICU room itself, uh, his mother went in and just kissed him on the forehead and said, Habibi, my loved one in Arabic, Habibi, you're finally home. And so after that, we spent the next few days, you know, uh, being visited by friends until his memorial where we had thousands of people uh, who would walk in sad, crying, and we would hug them and explain to them what we understood about happiness, what we understood about death and life. And they would smile and go around our house looking at pictures of Ali smiling all over the walls and, uh, you know, and, and they would leave happy. And if you didn't uh, know the background to the event, you would have thought it's maybe Ali's birthday or something. And so most of my friends came to me and said, uh, you should probably write this down. Uh, you know, it, you know it, it, it resonated very well, and it's clearly working. So it reminded me of a request that Ali uh, asked me two days, literally two days before he left. I don't know if you would believe this or not, but even though it was all of a sudden, I think he knew he was leaving, and you know, after, after he left, many of my friends who lost a loved one said that they also thought that they knew they were leaving. But Ali, for the last six weeks before he left, was asking all of his friends, what happens to us when we die? And, you know, in a very smiley way, saying, well, I think we will only know for sure when we get there, but I'm optimistic. Which was a very interesting way of Ali telling me, even before he left, that he, was already, that he already found his peace, if you want. Uh, but before he left, two days before he left, he sat us all down, myself, his mother and his sister, and he took his time, to be honest. You know, this time he spoke. He spoke a lot. He told each of us how much he loved us, how, much, how grateful he was to have us in his life, the things we did that made him the person that he was. He reassured us that he was really happy with what he did in life. And then he asked each of us the, to do one or two things. And from me, he asked me uh, something very unusual, because... Being at Google and working in emerging markets specifically, I tend to believe I had a positive impact on the world. 
you know, to bring knowledge and, the in, you know, search to countries where we didn't have knowledge and, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, access to information is something that is worthwhile, to be honest. Ali basically said something like, uh, well done, I'm proud of you. Thank you. And, and he said, I want you to continue to do this, but I want you to depend on your heart a little more often. So when my friends said you should write this down, I felt this was really what he asked me to do. So I, start, I sat down 17 days after he left, and I started to write nonstop. I'm not making this up. Nonstop. Hours and hours and hours a day. Uh, sleeping something like four hours a day and writing the rest of the day while I plugged my Google work in the middle. And four and a half months later, I had 600 pages written. And then, as Paolo Cohilio says, uh, you know, when you know your life's purpose, the universe conspires to make it happen. So, so literally, serendipity after serendipity, I got published in 14 countries before we even had the book finished, right? And, um, and so um, I, I, I looked at the, at the book as the model, but the businessman that I am and with my love for Ali, I sort of set myself a bigger mission, if you want. I gave myself a target to try and make 10 million people happy. And, you know, while it doesn't bring Ali back, I sort of felt that if we can share Ali's model with 10 million people and make them happy, then the world is a slightly better place. Okay? Uh, so uh, this is, by the way, a mission that I'm going to ask before we start talking about the content that you help me with, if, if you promise me if I make you a little happier today that you're going to share the message, okay? So, uh, so let's talk about it very quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to cover very, very high level uh, some of the biggest myths of what makes us unhappy. So we, uh, you know, I, I, who, who here in this room is not happy all the time? Sometimes happy, sometimes not happy, right? Okay, every single hand almost. Uh, anyone here who's happy most of the time, like 90% or more? Great. Okay. So it's doable, huh? So some of us actually can achieve happiness most of the time. Some of us are not doing that, obviously, um, which basically means you're missing your target. Because, you know, if it's doable, then, you know, you're, you're not doing really well. I mean, we would rate you as meets expectations, right? Um, but, but even those who... Uh, you know, who are happy sometimes and, ha and not happy other times. Of course, there are people who are unhappy most of the time. Uh, why is it so hard for happiness to be found? And, you know, I do, I do a training, uh, a two days training, where I ask people this question very, very frequently. And you get lots of answers back. You get answers like, life is hard. Or, you know, people around me have expectations of me. Or, you know... Um, um, you know, every time I achieve what I thought would make me happy, it seems like the goal moves a little further away and I still have to go trying. And all of these are right answers of the process uh, of why we don't get to happiness. But at the core of the, of, the, of the question truly was something I found at very early in my research, which was this. Um, have you ever gone looking for your keys when you had them in your pocket all along? Right? I mean, people with glasses would know that very well. So, you, yeah, right? I, I, yeah, I, you, you can relate to that. You put them on and then you look for them everywhere and you just can't find them. And, you know, you dive under the sofa and you shout at home like, honey, where are my glasses? Right? And, you know, how can you find them when, you've ha when you have them on? How, how, how can you find your keys when they're with you all along? And, and that's exactly the, 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 
the challenge we have with happiness. We keep looking for happiness outside us. We keep looking for things that make us happy. While the truth is this, every one of you, every child that has ever been born, is born with the default setting set to happy. Right? Every single one of them. Right? We, uh, if we're fed, if we're safe, if we're loved, if there is no reason for us to be unhappy, what's the default setting? The default setting is happy. Right? Happiness is your default state. And what happens truly, similar to what you do with your Android phones and iPhones, you, know, you, you get them out of the box and they're set to work properly. We're, we're, we come out of the box and we're set to be happy. Then you start installing weird apps, you know? You just add an app that you know, pings the network all the time or a spy app that's sending your content to the internet and your battery life goes to four hours, right? And you have to charge three times a day, right? You, you, you install another app and that app changes the language interface to Vietnamese and boom, you're gone, right? You're like literally miserable. It doesn't work at all. Now, that's exactly what happens to us. We, we come into the real world happy, and then we install apps over apps over apps, by the way, that are not useless. They have a very good function, which is to help us navigate the modern world, right? They make us efficient. And while they make us efficient, they make us miserable, right? So they help us reach success in the modern world as it is, but in the process, they take away our happiness. And anyone who's ever, you know, went to TechStop will know that What's the way to fix your phone? If your battery uh, uh, you know, drops to four hours a day, do you install another app to make it go back to six or eight? No. What do you do? You reset, right? You remove the apps that made you unhappy. And that's really, truly a very interesting engineering problem because while at a young age I was extremely successful as a businessman and a you know, an entrepreneur and a day trader and what have you, I was installing things in my life. I was trying to buy a beautiful car or, you know, get the, you know, whatever uh, expensive shirts or suits or whatever. I was trying to install more apps to make me happy. And I wasn't. Because truly what I should have done was remove the apps that made me unhappy. In a very, very interesting way, happiness truly is the absence of unhappiness. Think about it this way. Even you, not only little children, on a day like yesterday where the sun was out, you know, your boss was not annoying because it was a Sunday. Maybe, you know, your, your partner was in a good mood so you didn't have a reason to be unhappy. What was your state? Your state was happy. You didn't need anything to make you happy. You just needed nothing to make you unhappy. You needed the rain not to annoy you. You needed your boss not to be, uh, you know, uh, frustrating you and so on and so forth. So how do you reset? Uh, you reset uh, um, by removing the apps on top of happiness. But what is happiness? Okay? What is happiness is a question that I struggled with heavily as an engineer when I started the process of searching for happiness. So, so by the way, I, 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 I was very successful, very miserable. Okay? And then I had to search for happiness by reading because that's the only thing I had access to in the Middle East. And I couldn't get a word. I read viciously for two and a half years, and I just couldn't get it. They were not speaking the language that I understand, right? And the problem was, even as an engineer, if you tell me to fix a problem and I don't know what the problem is, I mean, how can I fix it until I define the problem statement? So I went out trying to find what happiness is. And 
you know, I get a million definitions of what happiness is. Happiness is to see my daughter smile. Happiness is to have a good cup of coffee. Happiness is to be out in nature. These are all instances of happiness. What is happiness? Okay? So I went out and did it the way an engineer would do it. I basically wrote down, uh, uh, you know, all of the instances where I felt happy, and I uh, tried to find the trend line between them. And you know what the trend line was? It was this. Of all of the instances where you can say, I feel happy when, the one common theme was, you feel happy when life seems to be meeting your expectations. Okay? Whatever your expectations are, whatever the event of life is, if life meets your expectations, you're happy. If you're, you know, if you're expecting it to snow and it only rains, you're happy. While if you're expecting, to, expecting it to be sunshine and it rains, you're unhappy. Right? It's always that comparison in our heads between events and expectations. If the events of life meets your expectations, regardless of how unrealistic your expectations are, you're happy. Right? Which you can put in a very simple equation. Happiness is equal to or greater than the events of your life minus the expectations of how life should behave. Okay? Now, once you get to that as an engineer, you can solve the problem. Because now I know the algorithm on which the software is calculating. So what really is happening is your brain over and over is assessing, sometimes we say, up to 60,000 times a day. Every single event. Mo goes on stage, he's wearing a weird T-shirt. You go like, ah, that's going to miss my expectations. Why did I do that? I could have been having a coffee outside, right? I'm unhappy. He starts to talk to you, and you're like, ah, that makes sense. Good. I'm happy, right? So... Um, but it's, is it really the events of life? So I, I want to do a quick test with you. Uh, just in a, in a quick one minute, I want you to do two tasks at the, at the same time. I want you to succeed at both tasks. Both are very simple tasks. So the first one, I apologize. I want you in 10 seconds, 20 seconds, to close your eyes and remember something that makes you unhappy. I want you to turn it over in your brain until you're miserable. Can you do that for me? No, no, don't laugh. I want you miserable. Right, now keep that unhappy thought in your head. Please try to continue to be unhappy. And I want you to just do a simple arithmetic task, which is to add the numbers on the screen. <laughs> or, no, 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 hold on. Why are you laughing? You're supposed to be unhappy. <laughs> At least add the numbers if you can, please. Okay, I'm going to show them to you again. Add them up, add them, add them. Okay, Who, anyone added the numbers? No, anyone remained unhappy? Failed twice, like bravo, right? So, so what did I do here? What I did simply is, remember, there, there were actually three stages. One, you were okay, you were smiling, everything was okay, you were engaged in the conversation. Then I asked you to think of something that made you unhappy. You thought about something that made you unhappy. What happened? Boom, immediately, unhappiness on demand, right? And then I distracted you. I stopped you thinking about what it is that you were thinking about. Simple as that. And what happened? Boom, happiness on demand. Right? It is really interesting because it's not the event. The event you were thinking about happened already. If you had not thought about it, you wouldn't be unhappy. It's not the event. It's the thought that makes us unhappy. You know what that means? It means your happiness equation looks like this, the way you think about the events of your life versus your expectations. Right? And I have a ton of examples about that. I, I remember I texted a friend a couple of, uh, of weeks ago, and I said something like, I'm starting to notice I'm always the oldest man in the gym, right? 
the emphasis of the thought here, of course, is the oldest, right? I'm feeling sad for myself because I'm getting old. She wrote back and said, you should be proud. I was like, yeah, <laughs> right? It's really very interesting. It's the exact same event, right? But if I think about it as I'm old, I, get, I feel unhappy if I think about it as, hey, by the way, I'm still keeping up and doing the best I can, I would feel happy. It's the same event, it's the thought that makes us unhappy. So let me introduce you to your misery machine, okay? And really, it all boils down to that little three-pound thing up there in your head. Because your brain can do three things. It can do three types of thoughts, right? Two of them are useful, and one of them is useless, right? Uh, the first one is what I call insightful thinking. And insightful thinking is if I give you a problem to solve, and insightful thinking happens on the right-hand side of the brain. There is experiential thinking. If I ask you to focus on the colors of this brain, your, your brain is experiencing the world as it is. It's trying to find out the truth of life. And experiential thinking also happens on the right-hand side of the brain and in the insula. Right? Then there is the misery-generating machine. You know that white noise you have in the background? Anyone has a voice in their head, by the way? Yeah? That white noise all the time. You can't even tell what it's really saying because most of us have several voices in our head. Right? It's just something out there. Hey, Mo, by the way, the, the Uber driver was rude. Right? Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah, the Uber driver was rude. Man, seriously. No, no, no. Life is not safe anymore. You cannot live in a world where the Uber driver is rude. That's like, seriously, brain, stop. Right? And, and really interestingly, have you ever seen any of that thought make any difference to the real world? Unless it moves to insightful or experiential, it's just making you miserable. Right? While, by the way, when it moves to experiential or, thought or insightful, right, you suddenly become happy. Because, by the way, as long as I'm keeping you interested in this, you're not thinking the chatter that makes you unhappy. Right? So it's really interesting why is it that we keep that machine going. Okay? And the reason we keep that machine going is found in the difference between two very interesting human conditions. One is pain, and the other is what I call suffering, which starts from emotional pain. I'm a tiny bit over time, but is that okay? Good. Uh, pain is, an, is that interesting survival mechanism, right? You cut your finger, and then you pull your hand away, and you start to feel a signal. Uh, you actually feel it in your brain, really, that says, keep that hand safe. So you keep it away from anything that would injure it. The interesting character of pain is, as long as there is a need to protect you, the pain will stay, right? It's a survival mechanism. It's a good thing, even though we hate it, huh? However, event A happens, you cut your finger. The minute the reason for the, pay, for the protection goes away, what happens? The pain signal is suspended and you, don't, and you no longer feel the pain. Even if your finger is still cut, by the way, you would notice that. It's not fully healed, but there is no need to protect it anymore. You no longer feel the pain. That's not the case with... Uh, by the way, emotional pain is the same, huh? Emotional pain is the same in terms of it leads you to do actions that would protect you. So if I was rude to you or maybe I said I'm a little bit over time, I felt I'm over time, I was a little guilty, I asked you if you guys are okay with this, right? That's emotional pain, right? And emotional pain is good because it helps us do the right thing and survive. The problem is when the event is over, right, I could turn it back on on demand. I could tell myself, even though they're okay with it, Mo, they're nice, but you're really horrible with time. You always run over time. You know, I really don't know how I can live with you anymore, right? So I am regenerating the event, uh, almost as if I'm living it again, just like I asked you to think of something that makes you unhappy, and that causes suffering, repeated pain, repeated sadness, 
Okay? And then I go again and say, hey, and by the way, remember when you did that in the event in San Francisco a week ago? You always do that, right? You're horrible, Mo. And by the way, you're also horrible in terms of smiling, and you're horrible in this, and you're horrible in that, and I hate you, and blah, 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 right? Don't we all do that? You know, incessant thought leading to regenerating the event leading to suffering, incessant thought leading to regenerating the event leading to suffering. Why do we do that? Believe it or not, it's a choice. We choose to do that, right? And I'll show you why in a second, but it, when we make that choice, I just want you to understand one thing. It has no impact on the real world. Had I not asked the words, had I not said the words, oh, by the way, I'm a little late, I would not have changed anything. If that thought happened in my head over and over, nothing changes in the real world. It's a total waste of my brain cycles. And it makes me suffer, okay? Almost like thinking of going to the dentist, and the dentist would tell you, hey, by the way, after we do the the root canal, which will annoy you for an hour, I'm going to give you this little button, and you can press it anytime you want to feel the pain again, right? Anytime you want to feel the pain, just press the button, and we'll give you the pain again, right? And that's exactly what what we do, isn't it? The event is over. The Uber driver was rude, and it's over. I'm never going to see that guy again, but I keep bringing it up over and over and over in my head with one result only, which is to torture myself. Now, the the reason we do that is something I call the suffering cycle. So you, so you have to think of that misery-creating machine of yours as a survival mechanism. It's trying to tell you something's wrong, Mo. You need to do something about it. Okay? Or you're not Mo, but it will tell you, you, you know, something's wrong. You, you, you need to do something about it. So the thought, you know, you know those very um, complex cars that have a million technologies but one lamp on the dashboard that turns red when something's wrong with the engine? Right? The red lamp is your suffering. When you feel that uncomfortable feeling, it's your brain assessing a million little things and telling you something's wrong. So the thought leads to the lamp, the suffering, and then you do nothing about it. And when you do nothing about it, your brain will go like, hey, we need to do something about this. We haven't covered this. So the thought pops up again. And then the lamp lights, you feel unhappy. And then you do nothing about it. And then the cycle continues. That suffering cycle is why, why the thought becomes incessant. It keeps coming over and over and over and over. Okay? And why does that happen? Interestingly, because we have been trained to do that in the modern world. Okay? So all of us have been trained because we are the sons and daughters or grandsons and granddaughters of generations that have seen very difficult times in world wars and great depressions. Right? So we've been trained to be successful. And to be successful, we had to do things in a way that made us uh, uh, sacrifice our happiness. We, 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 we were instructed to look at the world in a way where we factor into our happiness equation something that I call six and seven. Okay? Six grand illusions. Six grand illusions are ways where we look at the world. Remember, an illusion is not something that doesn't exist. It's something that exists in a form that is different than what you think it is. Okay? So the six grand illusions literally are things we use to navigate the world. Like I told you, your thought is just a brain, is is just a biological function. The voice inside your head is a biological function. Before that, because we glorify thought so much, we were trained to believe that I think, therefore I am, that the voice in my head is me, right? That's an illusion. If you believe that illusion, you obey. Every time the, the, the voice in your head says something, you do it, right? 
I tell you that, th- that this is not an illusion, and suddenly you go like, yeah, I don't have to listen to this guy anymore or this girl anymore, right? Someone sends, me, sends you a, a, an annoying email, and the immediate response in your brain is like, kill them. No, 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 seriously, thank you, brain. Interesting idea. Can you get me a better one, right? <laughs> and, and now you no longer have to exist. There are six grand illusions that we factor into our life over and over again, and they make us unhappy. Moreover, there are seven design features in our brain that were for the caveman years. Okay? They were designed to escape the tiger. And, and they allowed us to escape the tiger, but in the modern world, they become blind spots. They become blind spots to the point where they actually blur the truth. So most of the time when I tell you it's not the event of your life, it's the way you think about the event of your life in the happiness equation, the way you think about the, happiness equa- about the event of your life in the happiness equation is completely blurred by seven blind spots. You look at the world around you, and you can actually focus in. So, so one of them is what I call filtering, right? Look at us here. Everything's okay. We're having a good conversation. It's, it's really nice. It's springtime. You know, you're not starving to death. You're not in the streets of Syria, right? But you could simply tell yourself, oh, the, the, the seat is not very comfortable, Okay? And you can filter all of the rest out and focus on that event and say, life is miserable. I went and spent an hour in RSA, beautiful place, but the seat was not comfortable. Okay? And because of those seven uh, you know, blind spots, we end up unhappy most of the time. Right? So if you fix the, seven, uh, uh, the, the, the six grand illusions and the seven blind spots, you will think properly. You will sol- solve the happiness equation properly, and you will be happy much more often than not. Right? But then, once that happens, you start to tell yourself, why am, I, why, am I, why am I solving the equation at all, right? If every time I solve it, it tells, if I, every time I solve it correctly, I return a happy result, then probably there are a few truths to the way the world operates, even when it's harsh. And so I say there are five ultimate truths. My truth, okay? Your truth might be different. But for me, no event in my life went out of those five truths. Right? And if you apply this all the time, you will move from a state of happiness to what I call a state of joy. And a state of joy is that state where you don't really, you know, if, if someone is rude to you, it's, you're, you're rising above the clutter of thought. Right? You, don't, you don't tell yourself, hey, by the way, you know, it's, it's really not worth my brain cycles at all. And then you feel happy most of the time. Now, that was the teaser, because I could either keep you here for two and a half days and talk about the 675, or I could ask you to go online and watch the uh, uh, videos. I have a ton of videos, including the Stam- a class I did in Stanford that will talk about most of those concepts. Or, of course, read the book. Uh, uh, right? Uh, so, soulforhappy.com is where you should go. And uh, well, while you're there, please, there is a counter where I'm counting down from 10 million, yeah? It's the businessman in me. I apologize. I have targets on everything. So if I've, if my, if I've managed to make you happy, please click on the counter and say you made me happy. And uh, yeah, and I'm not doing this uh, just because I'd love to see you happy, but it's also because I'd love to see Ali happy. So if, uh, if you wouldn't mind, send him a happy wish that he's happy wherever he is right now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mo, for a terrific talk. It's just, an, uh, as you said, a whistle-stop tour uh, of the book, which is, which is fantastic, which is a wonderful tribute to Ali and also a very practical toolkit, uh, toolkit that I, I think um, everyone can get a, get a lot out of. Um, I, th- I think the first 
um, maybe sort of knee-jerk response to the, to the formula of expectations um, aligning with events and experiences is, is to lower the expectations, of course, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but surely not. I, I mean, okay. I, in your own experience, you've, you've set outrageous goals for yourselves, high expectations in your work. You're working for, for Google's Moonshot program. So, so it's, not as, it's not as simple as lowering so, the expectations. So, so expectations. Be, be proud. Be proud. The, this question always comes from achievers. It's like, yeah, if, you know, I might as well just lower my expectations and then I'm happy. And I, I'll tell you, honestly, yes, you will be happy. So if you lower your expectations, most events of life will meet your expectations and you'll be okay. If, if you expect your partner to slap you on the face twice every day and there is that day where they slap you only once, you're going to go like, great day. I'm, it's like, I'm so happy, right? And that's not the way we go through life, right? So, so, the, so combined with, you know, the Dalai Lama says that your, your purpose in life is to be happy and I believe that as a matter of fact because we do our best work when we're happy. But we also are... We have to believe that we're here for a purpose. Each and every single one of us is here to make a tiny difference to the world, right? And that tiny difference, you have no idea how far it might go, right? And so the only way you can be uh, productive in life, the, the only way you can have an impact on life, which is truly the purpose of why you're here, is to set ambitious expectations. It's not the size of your expectation, the size of your goal that matters. It's how you react when expectations are missed that matters, right? So I'm sorry to, to, to give you a bit of a sad example, but I planned everything for Ali. I had, you know, insurance policies, tuition plans. You know, I bought him a, a place to live. Uh, I, I even started businesses for him to manage when he graduates, right? I didn't plan for him to leave, Right? And, and, and I could not have planned for him to leave. The expectation was, was missed. What do I do? Do I you know, sit down and just end my life with that? Or do I tell myself, look, by the way, if you close your door and cry for the rest of your life, it's not going to bring him back. Right? Can you work within the new sets, set, set of, of parameters that life has given you and move forward to make life better. I call that committed acceptance. Committed acceptance is when life misses your expectations, how do you react? You try your absolute best to correct it. If there is no way you correct it, you accept, and then you commit to doing the best you can with the, with the new set of parameters and circumstances. Yeah. It's a really important lesson. Uh, I mean, I think, obviously, you've setting yourself the goal of solving for happy. I, I mean, again, that's another one of your audacious goals. I mean, how did you even goal. find um, the strength, um, the, the confidence to attempt a task like that, which has basically been you know, something that philosophers, theologians, psychologists, they've been worrying over since the, the dawn of civilization. Obviously, you've, when it came to writing the book, that was... Ali that propelled you to share the mission and the message, um, but you started the task, as you say, earlier in life. So what, what was it that made you think, yeah, I've got something new to offer here? Well, I, 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 th I think my love to Ali made it in my brain think that anything less than 10 million would not be equal to the, how much I love my son, if you want, right? Uh, but, but that's not the point. I think the point is really straightforward. Honestly, if I reach 10 million, I'll be really, really, really happy. But if I reach two people, 
Isn't that amazing, right? If you can make one person happy, isn't this what it's all about, right? And, and so, again, even, I, I give myself the 10 million because that's the way my businessman's brain work, right? I, I, I would give myself a, a, a big target and that will make me strive harder, like Michelangelo said. You know, what's worse than having a, you know, a target, it's, it's worse to have a low target and meet it than to have a high target and miss it, right? Yeah. You shoot for the moon. So, 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 so in, my, in my attempt, I was like, okay, let me shoot for the moon. And if I get five people, great. That's amazing, right? I, I think there is an interesting bit of, again, the modern world. Uh, one of the illusions I talk about in, in, the, in, the, in the illusion of self is our egos, okay? And, and the truth is, you know, you would fear a target like that and putting yourself out to the world if you're f- afraid that people will judge you and hurt your ego, that, hey, look at this stupid guy that thinks he can get to 10 million but only got to 10,000, <laughs> right? Seriously, if, uh, if this guy got to 10,000, it's amazing, right? And by the way, the, you know, the beauty of life is in the attempt. It's not in the, in the result. So who really cares if we make it or not? And you, you say in the book that was, that was Ali's approach to life, wasn't it? He, the, the ripple effect, kind of having the impact on Ali, a person. Ali had a, yeah. So, so, so that, that, that was probably one of my biggest learnings from that young man. He, you know, I, I'm, I'm the businessman who basically believes, uh, you know, of, in TED Talks. It's like, you know, I, I, I do something amazing and then I summarize it in 18 minutes and, hey, laptop for every child, We're right? Changed. Yeah, and, and literally on the topic of laptop for every child, Ali came to me and said, Papa, I just don't understand this. And I said, why, Habibi, you should have a spark and something big. And, I said, and he said, well, I believe in laptop for this child and then laptop for another child and then laptop for a third child. And if you do it really well, more children will come your way. His view of life was, you know what? If you're ready to give laptops for every child, every child will come your way. It's not the other way around. And completely shifted my mind in terms of maybe that's an easier way of, of changing the world. It, it's to change your little world. If you change the surrounding world around you, you become a little more qualified to think that you can change a slightly bigger world. Than, well, that sort of leads me on because really thinking about it, um, the book is very much your, your personal story and it's, it's, a, it's a manual, a user guide for the individual to, to search for happiness inside. But actually, if you're thinking about happiness more as, as well-being, as striving for that uh, higher sense of purpose, do we have to go out and seek it out there in our external relations, in society, in struggling for those, for those greater goals? No, so, 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 you, so, so there is actually a huge difference between happiness and well-being, and I think that's one of the things we need to correct our, yeah. our, uh, uh, you know, our government approaches okay. around, around the world. Governments will measure what they are impacting, which is well-being. Mm-hmm. It's like we can offer you a reasonable uh, standard of living that makes you comfortable, protects your health, and so on. And these are all prerequisites for happiness, but they're not happiness. Mm-hmm. Right? Happiness, as, as, as we agreed, is re- really a match or a mismatch between... Your, exp- your, your expectations from life and the events of your life, right? So, so, so um, you, you persevere in life not to seek happiness because you know what? If you actually achieve everything in life or achieve nothing at all, it's irrelevant. What's relevant is the way you're going to think about it. And once again, one of the, of the illusions we, I, I discuss is the illusion of control, that we actually think that we are the ones that are going to make a difference in life. And how arrogant is that? 
truly and honestly, if I reach 10 million, do you think it's because of my work or because of your work, right? You're going to be the ones that are going to tell people and then you're going to take my you know, analysis and actually make it better and then talk to a friend who's going to make it better and then talk to a friend, right? And, you know, we're unfortunately, because of LinkedIn and CVs and the way we look at the world, we, uh, we tend to inflate our impact on the world, right? But the truth is, it's never you alone. It's never you alone that achieves anything at all. Anything that is to be achieved is achieved because of hundreds, sometimes thousands, or even millions of people that put something, some part of their soul in it. The thing, however, is, once again, you persevere in life because you want to make the world a better place for you, but for the bigger community of humanity or the bigger community of being, if you want, right? But not because you want to be happy, because whether or not you achieve it, that's not necessarily going to impact on your happiness. Happiness is all happening in that midline area of the brain. Yeah. Okay, well, what does everyone else think? Um, do we have any questions from the, from the room? I'm Graham Humphreys. I'm a retired teacher and a fellow. Um, I've just spent 40 years working in a system where children are asked to learn facts and regurgitate them so that they can go to university and get a job and achieve something that will give them success in terms of finance and a future. Um, I just wonder whether we should really be focusing on emotional intelligence rather than IQ. This standards-driven drive we seem to have is making people unhappy. The default happiness of children particularly appealed to me in what you said. And I'd, I'd just like to thank you for that because we seem to be creating hurdles for children to slip up on and learn how to fail rather than learn how to succeed. I wonder what you feel the national curriculum ought to focus on. So, so, so first, first of all, thank you for the 40 years. There is no one to be appreciated more than a teacher. So thank you so much for what you've given. We, we, uh, we need to end... Okay? I, th I think the challenges of the, of the modern world is because we seek efficiency uh, so desperately, we tend to go to extremes. Right? So remember, knowledge, planning, intellectual, insightful thinking is what propelled our civilization forward. Right? The reason why humans are where we are today is because we thought and we learned facts and we used science and, 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 and. It's, it's the oaring that I think is making our life, you know, sometimes unhappy and inefficient because, by the way, we end up successful but not happy, right? Can we end that with lots of what the scientific method might not really agree with or at least not strongly propel forward because it's important for our emotional well-being, for our happiness, for our, you know, position in society, for humanity agreeing amongst us? Right? instead of disagreeing all the time. These are all valuable principles. Right? What would the curriculum look like? It would look like both. It would have this and that. Right? And when it has this and that, then we will have people that are successful, but at the same time happy, that are giving the world in terms of material success, but also in terms of peace and you know, wonderful energy in the world. Until that happens, by the way, I will say very openly, Let's not wait for anyone to do it. The role of teaching our children to be happy is up to us as parents. Okay? And, and you know, I, I, while we wait for the, the change to happen, each of us needs to be a role model of, I understand what makes me unhappy, I understand how to fix it, and I'm going to be a role model to every young ch m m you know, child, man and woman, 
to basically show them this is the way to go. And if we all do that, then maybe we don't need it at school. Uh, we've been talking about happiness, but we know that it's not a state of permanence. Happiness is just ephemeral. It leaves us for a time. So I would rather uh, be very much uh, aligned with your statement on well-being or state of contentedness. Uh, talking about that, I, I would ask you as a representative of Google and the company that has released personal assistant how our life would have changed if you, for instance, develop an application which I would call holistic well-being that would actually know us, our desires, our yearnings, and uh, our um, qualities of life preferences, and then would match that against what is in the real world so that we match your equation, essentially, that we leave the undesired things and concentrate of that what makes us content. Thank you. Okay, just take this question at the end. Thank you. Jeremy Kaplan, I'm a fellow of the RSA. Um, I totally embrace what you say about starting at the individual level. Each one of us can make ourselves happier by adopting what you say. And it isn't an either or, but hopefully a both. How can we get your message in front of some people who could also have a massive impact from the top down as well, such as the Trumps and the Putins and the Assads, etc.? I mean, so whilst everybody should be no, fighting no, no to make pressure, their life no better... Yeah. No, but seriously, is, is there a way that your message could be put in front of people where they have a responsibility and an ability to be happier with themselves and in so doing make the world a better place for other people? Well, we'll try and help with that. Um, and the final question here. My name's Nastran Tavakoli-Far. I'm a journalist. Um, so you talked about expectations and what actually happens. So there's a lot of people who have very low expectations of life, and these pretty much happen. So I'm thinking of people who are born into poverty or they have some sort of big stigma that they face in life, discrimination and stuff. And this leads to hopelessness rather than happiness, the fact that their expectations are low and these are actually played out. So I'm wondering how what you say fits into sort of social realities of how people are treated in society. Okay. Thank you. Right, I'll try, I'll try to do quick, quick, quick answers. So, so one, one is, no, we should not be content with well-being. Uh, your, your question had two, level, two, two layers to it. Happiness is a choice, okay? So, so contentment is happiness as you, as you described it. We need to choose that and make it a target to get to it. Can technology help us get there? I think in the near future it should be able to. Uh, I think there are several technologies coming together uh, that, are, uh, that are inducive of understanding a more complex world, right? Is, is technology being designed for happiness today? Unfortunately not. Technology has been designed for productivity, right? For knowledge, for all of the values that we've embraced as a society for so long. Right. And, uh, you know, I have, you know, being part of technology and part of the happiness environments as we speak, I get a ton of young startups that are actually trying to do something similar in terms of, you know, is there a way to actually measure why is it that I'm unhappy today? And, you know, how does that match? And I think there will be work on this. Will it happen soon? Probably not. Uh, but will it happen in your lifetime and mine? Probably so that's, that's one. Two, how can, how can we put this in front of everybody? 
I work for you. I'm dedicating my life for this for as long as I can. I will go anywhere and make a fool of myself if I have to. Okay? Uh, but I cannot do this alone at all. I think uh, having worked at Google, I have learned something amazing at Google. We have founders that are truly brilliant, truly, truly, you know, values-driven. Uh, they want to make the, the world a better world, uh, and, and they are brilliant, okay? But most of Google's decisions are happening from below, right? People will actually keep coming up and saying, hey, by the way, I think if we do it this way instead of that way, it would be better, right? And it is up to us. And, you know, there are lots of spiritual people that say there is an awakening in the world. I don't know if I, if I was to believe this or not, okay? All I know is there is an awakening here and hopefully in your heart and that if we work together, we will make it slightly, you know, more impactful than it, if it was none of us, okay? And then if we make more and more of us request that, require that of our leaders, then to get votes, they'll work for it, okay? And, and so, so, so surprisingly, I never expect the top to do anything. It's probably my Google education, okay? It's, I never expect the top to do anything for me, right? I, I expect to move my way up mm, until either we change the perception of the top or one of you becomes the top, and then we're in a good place, right? Uh, it's not like we're in a horrible place now, events and expectations, but yeah. Uh, on uh, people who are in um, unprivileged situations. So, so there are two layers of those. As a matter of fact, the happiest societies in the world do not have the luxuries that we have. So if you go to Latin America, where people literally live day to day and just have enough to eat, they are some of the happiest people in the world. The reason why, uh, and, I, and I had the pleasure of working in a, in a coffee farm for a full day in Colombia, where it rained heavily and I had to go up the mountain 12 times with a six-pound you know, bag of coffee. And you know, it was a very harsh experience if I were to live it every day. But when I asked my supervisor, who, by the way, carries a 20-pound bag to do this, they were just giving me the tourist thing. Uh, you know, basically, she said, I asked her, I said, and how long have you done this? She said, around 50 years of my life. And I said, are you happy? And she said, of course. What else would I expect from life, right? I had a friend with me who started to ask herself, yeah, you know, she, she doesn't want an iPhone. She doesn't want a better car. She doesn't want more entertainment on TV. She, she has what she's looking for, and she's happy. There are those of us, however, that are in places where, unfortunately, it's so harsh and tough that, you, as you rightly said, it may lead us to hopelessness. Okay? Believe it or not, that doesn't only happen in the poorest places in the world. I, I have friends in the U.S. today that believe that the political scene of the U.S. is becoming so harsh to them that they are in a state of hopelessness. And my question would be this. While I don't blame them for being in that place, I just ask, which would be better for your chances to get out of where you are? Would it be to try the best you can and, you know, and hopefully you will get a step further or to be hopeless and close your door and cry, right? Because when, you, when you're hopeless and close your door and cry, even though life is harsh, all you're doing is just up here in your brain, okay? In my personal experience, I find it difficult to believe that if you don't try, uh, you're going to make any difference. And I find it difficult to believe that if you try, 
there will not be a difference. It might be a tiny difference, but it's slightly better than where you are today. Now I'm asking them to do a, a, a miraculous task, and I think it's up to all of us to help people who are in this situation. But all I'm trying to say is that even in those situations, unhappiness, unfortunately, does not help. It just makes things worse. So it's not an accommodation with the status quo. It's, as you it's, say, it's always, there's always struggle. It's always committed acceptance. And by the way, I, I just want you to understand this. Regardless of where you are in life, there are certain things that may be comparable to the harshest thing in life, right? So I w I'm wealthy, I have all that I need, right? And how does life test me? It takes away Ali, right? Does, does that not happen to all of us? I tend to believe each of us will somehow, sometime in our life, get an experience that is almost designed to test us, okay? Yeah, it's the way the game is played. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm going to use a very weird analogy here. So Ali was a video gamer, and I played with Ali all the time. If, you know, if I am in level six of Halo, and I go to Ali, and I say, Ali, this is way too hard, right? What do you expect him to say to me? He was, he's going to say, Papa, look, you can either play the game or go play another game. But we cannot tell Microsoft to make it easier. So, this is Halo level six. This is it, right? And the reality of our life is our life sometimes has levels that are very harsh. Now, he's right. I may, I may have had the choice of you know, putting my controller down and not playing Halo, but this game of life, it's the only game I have. So you know what? I might as well try to be the best in the world at it. Okay? I might as well be a really good video gamer. Okay. More questions? I'm also a fellow of the RSA. I thoroughly enjoyed what you had to say. I identify and you've helped me a lot. And it's really that we're all, I feel we're always happiness. If my friend's put on a stone and I feel a bit happy and then she's lost a stone if I'm trying to diet, this is a nasty side to us too. But I'm thinking more on, uh, I can understand very, very much indeed about what you've said so far. My brother had paranoid schizophrenia. He died in his 40s of a stroke. Nothing I could really do with Roger to stop in questioning life and feeling he ruled the world. Um, I get depersonalization. I find it really, really, really frightening. Uh, I don't know how you can help these sort of feelings. How can you do that? Can you just say, if, uh, if, can you just say to yourself, I'm not supposed to be happy all the while, this will pass? I just wonder if it can just be moved even one more space because you've done so much already. Uh, hi, thank you for the talk. Uh, I think it's very dangerous to say poverty is the happiness of the world when clearly you don't live in that situation or are condemned to a life living in that situation where you have uh, no free health no free education, etc. no free things to be able to, or even basic human rights, unless we enshrine those in a constitution for the world first, then happiness can never be achieved, apart from by the very few wealthy people of the world who do have that luxury, luxury of paying for the things that make them happy. Thank you very much. Uh, hi, I'm Daniel McMurray. I'm a, um, a fellow and um, a catalyst at the Crowd Forum. Um, there's a, there's a saying that I've heard that the essence of human misery is uh, lies in comparison, uh, where people uh, see what other people have and, and they feel miserable that they don't have it and feel like they should be getting it. Um, we live in a, an age now where people are constantly connected to social media, sh sharing each other's 
sharing their meals and presenting a, a mythology of themselves through their social media, partially real, partially how they want to be seen and projected. Um, do you see that there's... Um, it seems like this is an inevitable way that we're moving with technology and with the use of social media and so forth. Do you see that there will be a, a backlash from that where people will revert away from this constant projection of themselves or do you see that it is an inevitable trend in human society that will continue this way? Okay. And then the final question, if you could just pass it along. Thank you. Um, Mary Wood, uh, a fellow and also a psychotherapist. And um, my question is about the uh, right brain and the left brain and how the right brain is developed at a very, very young age and how we overcome this, especially if there's a poverty of parenting. Wow. Comparisons. Okay. How do we try look, look, guys. Basic... I'm an engineer. Okay. <laughs> let's let's just. I'm I'm, tr I'm trying Excess. to do the best I can here, but there is a skill level I cannot go above. I'll I'll, I'll talk about those quickly. And and please, you know, accept that we can have uh, some different points of view. By the way, there is absolutely uh, nothing wrong with that. Feelings in my view, are probably a big part of my research. So feelings of, you mentioned feelings of fear or worry or anxiety or whatever. Feelings in my analytical brain's approach to life are truly a result of a thought, right? So you start from a thought and the thought will trigger an emotion, right? Uh, let me give you a very quick example. My, my wife took my convertible back in 2004. She had a head-on collision with a truck. The car was completely a wreck. My wife walked out completely safe. And the feeling I generated as a result was happy, right? Had my wife taken the car, parked it on the side of the road, and then the truck hit it on, the event would be exactly the same. The car would be a total wreck. My wife would still be safe. But the way I would think about it would be miserable. You, cra you crashed my toy. You know, I would feel very unhappy. So you reframe the thought. You reframe the emotion. Okay? And that's truly, truly, in my view, almost, of course, emotions, by the way, generate more thought. Right? That's the part we, 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 re, we recognize, that the emotion is generating thought. But the original emotion came from a, from a thought as well. Right? So if you reframe that, you get a different emotion. The fear and anxiety and all of that I actually is one of the six grand illusions because it's, have, it's, it's massively exaggerated. Okay? The way our brains... Uh, use fear to put us, uh, to get us, to give us a sense of urgency on topics that they feel are super important, that logic alone would not urge you to do the action in the magnitude or the speed that they want you to do it. Uh, uh, you know, it's really interesting. But if you analyze fear, and I, and I have a, a very systemic questionnaire, sort of, you know, if you analyze most of your fears, not all of your fears, but most of your fears, you will realize they're not really warranted. Right? You, can, you can fear a, a black widow, right? but the tiny spider, yeah, maybe you, should, you can be creeped of it, but is, is it really worthy of being feared? And I really think, and I'm not saying people who have a fear of spiders will change. I'm just asking that you recognize that your fear is highly exaggerated, right? That most of the time what we tell ourselves is going to happen in the future is a survival mechanism. Our brain is plotting all of the different scenarios to try and tell us, hey, by the way, scary, 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 scary. 
We need to take care of those, right? Sometimes the right way to do it is to say, yeah, actually, it's scary. I need to do something about it. Or sometimes you go like, brain, seriously, that's not even valid, right? Why are you bringing this up? And then you move on, right? So uh, poverty, I, 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 I think you misunderstood me. Uh, I'm not endorsing poverty in any way, right? Uh, and I apologize if I came across that way. I'm saying that some of the happiest societies in the world do not have the luxuries that we have. And that's a scientific, a, a statistical fact, right? Uh, not because we, and, and as a result, we should not say, hey, good enough, leave them where they are in poverty, right? No, 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 no. We should all work together to make the world a better place and more of an equal place. As a matter of fact, one of the statistics that shock me is that there are more than a billion, there are around a billion people in the world that are hungry and a billion people that are obese, right? That inequality is just unfathomable for me, to be honest, right? Now, however, what I'm trying to say is poverty or not, uh, richness or not, does not seem to be an indicator of happiness because some of the richest friends I know are miserable and some of the poorest people I deal with are happy with life. You walk down the streets of Africa with all of the poverty of Africa and I can guarantee you will never see a smile like the smile of an African person, right? Uh, so, so, so this is my view, but you're absolutely right. We should not accept that uh, as, as a society. Comparison, oh yeah, comparison is going to truly, truly explode if we continue on the trend we're going through. And unfortunately, as, as you rightly said, you know, we should teach our children differently. Now, I, I will say this, technology is a double-edged sword, right? And you, you can use it to... To, to do amazing things. Like, you know, I'm connecting with thousands, tens of thousands of people on, on Facebook, right? Uh, uh, spreading my message, getting happiness truly in their f messages and posts. And, you know, and, and, and you can use it to compare and feel bad about yourself. And I think we're overdoing the comparing and feeling bad about ourselves. And once again, should we ask Facebook to change? Maybe. Uh, but that's like asking Trump to change as well, right? And maybe both of them will, and maybe both of them will, you know, Facebook is a great place, by the way. I, don't, I, I actually think it's a great company, right? But we also have to change. We also have to stop throwing our, you know, our envy-creating messages on the world. If, uh, you know, all I know is my little world is I'm not going to brag about anything. I'm not going to make anyone feel bad. And if I do that and the world doesn't change, at least I did my bit. And if each of us does that, in a, in a way, the world will become a better place. Right brain and left brain, that is a huge, huge, huge part of what I'm actually working on right now. Uh, the, 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 there is part of Solve for Happy where I speak very uh, uh, specifically about the use of words and how our words as building blocks of logic completely start to remove our subconscious mind from recognizing the world as we did as children. The reason we were so happy as children, by the way, is we didn't have that thought. Okay? We were just observing the world around us. Now, right brain and left brain, in my view, is a mix. I mean, you, you mean the creative mind and the analytical mind. In, yeah, and in, in my view, I unfortunately tend to believe, and I'm a, a bit of this and a bit of that, but of course when I go to the workplace, I prioritize my left brain because, again, that's the societal norm of what is now expected, is that you know, smarter people are more valued maybe than creative or emotionally intelligent people. And so 
more and more we're trying to go into that direction. Can we mix both of them? I wish, I don't know how. I have to say I, can, I tend to believe that our world is becoming, uh, is, is constantly valuing. You can see more engineers, more accountants, more lawyers, more debate, more, 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 right? Um, exactly how? I haven't done that research yet, so you, can, you need to come to my next session if they ever invite me back to RSA. So, we'll save yeah. that. Well, unfortunately, we have gone over time in fact, so apologies for keeping you a few minutes extra. And sorry if we didn't get to your questions. But so click, click on the counter and share the word, please. Share, share the word. Uh, hashtag 10 million happy. Um, and thank you again to Mo for a terrific session today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.